This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and thanks for downloading the latest Rear Vision podcast. It's the story of Chinese migration to Australia, and surprisingly, it's a story that goes back to the early colonial years. Later tonight, Australia's population is set to reach another milestone. The Bureau of Statistics has calculated that just after 11 tonight, the number of people living here will hit 25 million. Last year, 38% of our population growth resulted from births outnumbering deaths, and 62% was the result of migration. People born in China made up the largest group of migrants, accounting for 15.8% of total arrivals. Migration statistics can make your head spin, so this will be less a story of numbers and more a broad brush account of Chinese-Australian history. It's 200 years since the first documented settler arrived in the fledgling Australian colonies from China. Since then, social and economic change, as well as political events in both Australia and China, have driven Chinese immigration. Although there's evidence that people from China had contact with the Australian continent even before the British arrived, the first settler we know about arrived in February 1818. Dr Kate Bagnall is a historian at the University of Wollongong. The very earliest Chinese who arrived in Australia came as part of the British trade that was trading out of Canton in Guangdong province. So these were kind of scattered individuals who were working on British ships coming from Canton and into Sydney. So Sydney was an important port of call as part of that trade. The very earliest man we have evidence for was was here in 1803. And then there were sort of scattered men coming off the ships into Sydney for shorter or longer periods of time in those early decades. But the first Chinese man that we know settled in the colony of New South Wales was John Shaying, who arrived in 1818. And he went on to purchase land and to become a hotelier in Parramatta. In the 1840s, the British government stopped sending convicts to Australia and indentured labourers, including men from China, were brought to the colonies to work. That's right. There are scattered examples throughout the 1830s, but it's really in the late 1840s that larger groups of Chinese men are coming to Australia as indented labourers. And these men were coming through the port of Amoy, or what is today Xiamen, in Fujian province. And they were recruited in Fujian and brought to New South Wales on labour contracts. And they were coming out to work as indentured rural labourers. Because of the end of convict transportation, the colonists in New South Wales were looking for a new cheap labour source and the Chinese from Amoy, there are about three and a half thousand of them who came between 1848 and 1852 and they came out to fill that void. What is indentured labour and what did it mean for these men in terms of what happened to them once they got here? So indentured labour basically means that you're on a contract. So they would sign a labour contract before they got on the ships in China. And then when they came to New South Wales, they would be required to work for a period usually of about three years. And they would have an employer who is their master and they employed under the Masters and Servants Act. So they were sort of tied to that employer for the period of their indenture. So they could be sent anywhere and a lot of the men worked in, on, as I said, on rural properties and at that time up into Queensland, what is now Queensland as well. So New South Wales and Queensland. Do we know what happened to those men? Did they end up going back to China or did they stay in Australia? 
We don't know about all of them, but there are a significant number who stayed in Australia, who settled here. And quite a few of the very earliest Chinese-Australian families that we have were formed with those Amoy Chinese men meeting and forming families with women in the colonies. The trickle of Chinese arrivals turned into a flood when gold was discovered in the 1850s. Dr Alana Camp from Western Sydney University. In fact, in the 1850s, the Chinese were the second largest migrant group after the British. And we have stats from Victoria, for example, between 1853 and 1857, the Chinese population increases from 2,000 to 40,000. So that's a very, very short period of time that we're getting these huge amounts of Chinese gold miners seeking their fortune on the Victorian gold fields. We also have statistics for Queensland. So by the early 1870s, so we have to remember that the Queensland gold rush started a bit later. So in the early 1870s, there was one Chinese person to every 10 European. They're a real presence on the Australian continent. We have to remember that a lot of these men came from Guangdong province in southern China, poor rural villages, often reliant on subsistence farming. So it was part of their family tradition for the men to go overseas, whether it's to the Californian goldfields or the Canadian or the New Zealand, and try and earn some wealth to send back home. Among the thousands of fortune seekers, the Chinese gold diggers stood out in a way that made them targets for resentment. The Chinese brought with them, as most migrants do, their culture, their ways of living, the food they eat, the way they dress, their religion, their language. And this was seen as quite strange to a lot of the European gold diggers, whether they were from parts of Europe or from the British Empire. You know, these strange ways of eating and speaking and this strange religion where they burnt incense and prayed to multiple gods alongside the successes of Chinese on the goldfield. The Chinese were really successful on the goldfields and there were jealousies there. So, yeah, that's really how the hostilities started. But I do want to also point out there's often emphasis on the way that the Chinese were discriminated against. But that wasn't everybody. There are cases where the Chinese were recognised as really important to the developing colonies. They were setting up brickworks. Their bricks were known to be the strongest because of their manufacturing process. So several buildings in gold mining towns like Bendigo and Castlemaine were built using the, the Chinese bricks. They were central in developing the market gardens in these gold mining towns, which again, they fed the community. So in some respects, they were discriminated against and were seen as this feared other that was contaminating the British population. But in other ways, it was also recognised that they were central and important to the development of the colony. Nonetheless, violent anti-Chinese riots took place throughout the 1850s and 60s, prompting colonial governments to bring in laws to exclude them. In the early 1850s, once gold is discovered, there's a big migration of Chinese to the colonies and quite quickly too. So we go from having, you know, hundreds of Chinese in the colonies to thousands and tens of thousands. And white colonists grew fearful about those very large numbers and the numbers of them who were men and the ways that they were coming and the reasons that they were coming. These Chinese weren't coming to be settlers in the sort of traditional sense of, of a migrant. And so it was felt that the Chinese were coming to exploit 
the colonies and to go back to China, that they weren't sort of participating in, in developing colonial society. So Victoria was the first colony to introduce anti-Chinese legislation in 1855 and that was followed by legislation in South Australia in 1857. And what that did was to put a poll tax what was called a poll tax or a head tax, on every Chinese entering the colony. So that was a £10 poll tax. And it also brought in shipping limits, so only a certain number of Chinese passengers could be on each ship. And then New South Wales followed in, in 1861. But one of the important things to remember about that very early legislation is that by 1867, it had been repealed. So it was really a measure that was brought in sort of in the 1850s, 1860s to deal with a, a sort of what was seen as an immediate crisis. And then it was repealed once that crisis was seen to be over. So those early laws are repealed by 1867, but then in the 1880s, a new and more vicious laws against the Chinese are brought in. So throughout the 1870s, Chinese migration starts to build again. And by 1881, the colonies are really thinking about what they want to be into the future. They're becoming more self-assured and obviously starting to lead up towards that process of federation. And so in 1881 and then in 1888, again, there are anti-Chinese laws, immigration laws that are brought in and they are more uniform across all the colonies. New South Wales, Victoria really push these laws because they're the colonies that have the greatest number of Chinese. But after colonial conferences that are held, all the colonies, including New Zealand, decide that they're going to take this uniform action against Chinese immigration. Was it only Chinese immigration? Yes. One of the things that brought the colonies together towards federation was the desire to have uniform control over the borders of who came in and out of Australia. It's a very familiar idea. There was debate in Parliament in 1901 when the Immigration Restriction Bill was put up, but there was no doubt about the desire to keep Australia white and to do that by keeping out particularly the Chinese but also other so-called coloured races. The Immigration Restriction Act, which established a white Australia policy, was one of the first laws passed by the new federal government. The primary tool of restricting this immigration was through the dictation test. So according to this legislation, anyone entering the nation, unless they were already a naturalised British citizen, had to undertake a dictation test. This test wasn't in English, not necessarily in English. It could be in any European language. So you may board the ship in Hong Kong on your way to Australia and be tested in French. So the likelihood of you passing is probably quite low. That was the primary tool of the Immigration Restriction Act. So across the nation in 1901, there were around 33,000 Chinese. By 1947, 12,000. And it was this Immigration Restriction Act as well as the discrimination that was going on inside Australia. So if you were a Chinese person already in Australia, you were faced with discrimination and racism in your everyday life. Your ability to get a job, your ability, say, to reunite with your family, everyday racism. We had public media. The Melbourne Punch and the Bulletin were famous for their cartoons, which were so anti-Chinese and racist in their depiction of the heathen Chinese or the contaminating opium-smoking Chinamen who we must eradicate from our nation. 
And it even stemmed into political discourse. I mean, it was in Parliament that they were discussing immigration restriction. And when you look in Hansard and actually look at what the politicians were saying, they weren't holding back. They would say the Chinese are contaminating our race. We need to lock them out of our country. They're immoral. Their religion doesn't align with Christianity. And it was very much rooted in social Darwinism, this idea of a racial hierarchy. So in the minds of early Australia, the politicians even, it was that the white European race, particularly the British, were at the top of the racial hierarchy and we moved down into the coloured others, the so-called coloured others. So the Chinese were down the bottom. This is Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. We're wrapping up our China in Focus series, looking back over 200 years of Chinese migration to Australia. The post-war period was a time of dramatic change in both countries. After the experiences of World War II, the Australian government was fearful of future invasion and saw immigration as a means of quickly boosting numbers. Populate or perish was the cry. In China, the success of Mao's revolution led some Chinese to look abroad to avoid a communist future. Australian law was changing too. In 1958, a new Immigration Act abolished the infamous dictation test and softened its discriminatory features. Ching Guan, a researcher at the ANU School of Demography, looked at census figures during these years. So the figure I have are from 1947 to 1966 from Australian censuses. And 1947 has the lowest number of ethnic Chinese in Australia, which was just above 9,000. And that is about 0.1% of total Australian population in that census. And then it keeps increased to about 23,000 in 1966 census. Were many of the people who came in those years family members joining other family members here? Oh, they are one of the most important migration streams during that period. And one thing we can see is the sex ratio of migrants changed a lot during those post-war period, which indicates the family migrants. The pre-war period, and even during the gold rush, we see predominantly male migrants. And the ratio can be as high as 300 to 1. So 300 male to 1 female migrants from China. And during the post-war period, this ratio decreased drastically and we saw lots of female migrants, female Chinese, which are presumably wives moving to Australia to joining their husbands. Australians do accept people of other races and other colours and uh, they are an extremely tolerant people. Tolerant probably isn't the right word. They just happen to accept people, and particularly they accept the people of uh, Southeast Asia. Now, our policy is a quite clear one. We want one Australian people. We want those who come there to live permanently to be Australians. And we don't want little enclaves that can be a source of irritation or a source of difficulty for us. Liberal Prime Minister William McMahon explaining Australia's immigration policy in Washington in 1971. His position was about to be blown away as Labor's Gough Whitlam first visited communist China and then, as Prime Minister, put the final nail in the coffin of the white Australia policy, ushering in the novel idea of multiculturalism. 
Dr Sophie Loy-Wilson is a historian from the University of Sydney. What's important to recognise is there's a number of prominent figures in the Chinese-Australian community who've been advocating for this to happen for many, many years. A man called William Liu, who from the 1930s had been advocating for the end of the white Australia policy. He was able to witness that. He was given an order of Australia for his work as an activist against white Australia at this time. So suddenly a number of figures in the community are recognised for their work. And these men and women that had been working with people and the visa system and the immigration system for years, creating things like sympathy templates, like how best to fill out your paperwork to get into Australia. So there had always been Chinese-Australian agency, if you like, against white Australia, trying to figure out how to find loopholes in the system, when to go to court, for example, when to hire a lawyer. So there had been this groundswell of community knowledge about the system. And of course, what happens with the end of white Australia is suddenly things become even looser. Mark Wang, Deputy Chairman of the Chinese Museum in Melbourne, says that unrest in many parts of Southeast Asia during the 1960s, 70s and 80s brought many more Chinese migrants to Australia, some of them as refugees. The whole of Southeast Asia was under great pressure and uh, there was the Vietnam War in the 1960s, 1970s. There was race riots in Malaysia against Chinese in the late 1960s. Cambodian refugees were around in the 1980s, East Timorese. So in that whole period, there was total unrest in the Southeast Asian area. And unfortunately, Chinese were often victimised during that time. And so the fact that the Immigration Act was then open to Chinese people arriving made a very large difference to the Chinese community in Australia today because the makeup of the Chinese Australian community are made up of those waves of Chinese people who came during the 70s, 80s and 90s. And they came from other parts of Asia, not necessarily from China. Well, well this, is, this is the myth that people have about the identity of Chinese Australians. Only 25% of Chinese actually come from China directly. And uh, 25% of Chinese, like myself, uh, Australian-born Chinese that are second, third and fourth generation. And then the other half of Chinese people come from places like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Taiwan, Cambodia, who, who have lived in that country for many decades or centuries even and then have migrated to Australia. Although they have basic Chinese ethnicity and Chinese culture, their makeup is quite different and their experience is quite different to people who come from mainland China. But it was events in mainland China that led to the biggest influx of Chinese migration since the gold rushes. Thousands have been killed and injured, victims of a leadership that seems determined to hang on to the reins of power at any cost. Foot soldiers went through the square, bayoneting or shooting anybody who was still alive. They had orders that nobody in the square be spared. The Tiananmen Square massacre prompted the then Prime Minister to suddenly offer humanitarian visas to 20,000 Chinese students staying in Australia. Probably the largest group of immigrants that come out of China after the White Australia policy is what's called the Tiananmen Generation. We all know about Tiananmen Square, 1989, democratic uprising against the communist government of China. Bob Hawke, our Prime Minister, is especially moved by this uprising, and he does something quite unusual. He pledges that he will create refuge in Australia for refugees fleeing the massacres in Tiananmen, and he will also work with families in Australia who are worried about 
events in China to help bring their relatives over and also to, to protect them in Australia, to make sure they can stay, so to naturalise them. So people who are already in Australia who aren't naturalised are naturalised in this time. So it's a time when citizenship, the idea of citizenship is broadened very radically to include many more Chinese Australians that had been included in that category. And they really changed the face of Chinese Australia because for the first time, the largest group of migrants from China are not Cantonese, they are mainlanders and they're mostly northerners. So this is going to radically change the community after 1989. The Cantonese community, very proud community with ties back to the gold rushes, has its own dialects. There's many, many dialects in Guangdong in China where Cantonese people originate from. There's different religious beliefs, different food cultures. And also, you know, this is a group of people, the Cantonese community, that didn't necessarily experience communism. They came out prior to 49 with the gold rushes. Then comes a very politicised community, a community that has been forged in the north of China under communism, you know, under Mao. And they have very different ideas of what it means to be Chinese and they have very different ideas of what it means to advocate for Chinese Australians. And they speak a different language. They speak Mandarin and they don't speak Cantonese dialects. They don't eat the same food. So this is going to have big cultural differences for the community. And so it really changes the fabric of that community and diversifies the type of Chinese Australians that live in Australia. 42,000 Chinese students in Australia were granted permanent visas by the Labor government in the aftermath of the massacre, and that number grew to around 100,000 once family members joined them. Over the years since then, we've seen China's spectacular rise as a global superpower. Mark Wang says changes in the law in China have allowed more migration. Nobody migrated from mainland China to Australia until about, I don't know the exact year, but in the 1990s or early 2000s, you weren't allowed to leave China. So therefore, there weren't that many migrants. So it's a two-way street. It's also the Chinese migration policy there for people being able to leave China and then the Australian government wanting to have people from China. But over the last 20 years, without any doubt, it's been the rise of uh, the economy in China and the easing of migration restrictions that have enabled Chinese people to travel to other parts of the world and settle. And, you know, I've spoken to lots of Chinese people and there are all kinds of reasons why they chose Australia as as simple as, oh, I picked up a a brochure in the Australian consulate and I picked up a a brochure in the Canadian consulate and the the brochure from Australia looked better than the brochure from Canada. There are simple things like that that made people choose one city over another. Often it's serendipity sometimes. It's not just, you know, people wanting to make millions of dollars. Where's the best place? Since the end of the White Australia policy, there's been an overall decline in family migration and an increase in skilled migration. Professor Leslie-Ann Hawthorne from Melbourne University. Once the White Australia was abolished in 1973, there was a very rapid growth in Asian migration to Australia, principally as permanent migrants to begin with. But, of course, from the time Howard liberalised temporary labour migration, there was very rapid growth also from Asia, including from China, for temporary foreign workers. Over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, there's been a rapid acceleration in skilled migration 
migration as Australia's top priority. So if you look at the situation in the, the recent decade, about 68% of the permanent migration places have been for people who were skilled. And the Chinese have been major players in that space, either people who've qualified in Australia and stayed on onshore, or else people who've applied from China, been selected on the basis of their skills and then have come. Australian migration law changed significantly during the years of the Howard government. John Howard in 1996 made it very possible to apply to become a temporary worker, typically on a four-year visa in the first instance, but with the right to extend that and very often opportunity to apply in Australia to become a permanent resident. The important thing to note with that is there was no annual quota, unlike the permanent skilled migration intake. The idea is it could become as big as employers wanted it to be and that employers got to select, which was very strong in times of buoyant demand. And if there was a recession, it would organically diminish in size and we didn't have to keep the people if the jobs disappeared because a condition was employment. Now, by the end of 2016, we had about 174,000 temporary workers on this visa, resident all up, and China in the last 10 years has been the sixth biggest source, whereas in the permanent skilled migration category, it's been the third main source for Australia in the last 10 years. Australian census figures reflect the growth of Chinese-born migrants, both temporary and permanent, since the 1980s. The number of China-born migrants in 1981, which is about five, six years after the dismantlement of white Australian policy, was just below 25,000. And this number increased uninterruptedly to more than 100,000 in 1996 census. And then the number kept increased to more than half million in the most recent census, 2016 census. And the proportion of migrants from mainland China and also increased from about 0.2% in 1981 census of the total Australian population to about 2.2% of Australia's total population in 2016 census. And the largest increase was observed after 2001 census, which is paralleled with Australia's policy changes towards having more students becoming skilled migrants. And lots of them went through this two-stage migration process, I think. The first stage is you came to Australia as a temporary migrant, either temporary worker or students. And then Australian offers this pathway to um, settle permanently as a permanent migrant. China has been a very important resource for Australia. If you look at the permanent skilled migrants from China in the last 10 years, we've brought in about 65,000 people and they've been very significant in a number of fields. They've been Australia's second top source of accountants. They've been the third top source of people in the food trades and education. And they've been the fifth top source of IT professionals, engineers and nurses. So we're seeing a lot of Chinese move 
move into key professions and trades. If you look at the temporary workers who've come from China, the numbers have also been very large, although only half the scale of those coming on a permanent basis. And the top fields have been accounting and education. They've been followed by IT, engineering, nursing and the non-food trades. So at every level, really, in the economy, there's a growing volume of people who've either qualified in Australia, applying for jobs when they've stayed on, or who are fairly young Chinese who've qualified in China and have met selection criteria to come to Australia and work. The rise of China, as it's called, such a kind of important part of recent history, has revolutionised what it means to be Chinese in Australia because all of a sudden some Australians have what's called China literacy. They speak Chinese. I'm talking about white Australians here. They've been to China. They have some knowledge about what this country is. I think that these days a lot of Chinese Australians migrate because they've already had contact with Australians through business, professionally, or maybe through education. And I think a lot still migrate for the classic reason, for a better life for their children. Dr Sophie Loy-Wilson from the University of Sydney. The other people you heard were Ching Guan from the ANU School of Demography, Mark Wang from the Chinese Museum in Melbourne, Dr Kate Bagnall from the University of Wollongong, Dr Alana Camp from Western Sydney University and Professor Leslie Ann Hawthorne from the School of Population and Global Health at Melbourne University. And there's heaps more good listening in our China in Focus series here on Radio National. Just look for the link on the RN website. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. 